Well, happy Sabbath. Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you so much that this is all about you and not about me. I'm so grateful that you can equip us with your Holy Spirit. Please speak your words through me. Make me a conduit of your Holy Spirit. Pray. Is this on? It seems a little echoey. Yeah? Okay. So, lessons from Moses on turning 40. I'm turning 40 this summer, and my mom used to tell me that her dad, my grandpa, would say, you don't even know what life's all about until you hit 40. So I've grown up thinking, oh, there must be something special about turning 40. You must just really have it all figured out by the time you hit 40. And as thinking about this, you know, turning 40 soon, I've been thinking, it's actually a really significant number. People in both secular society, there's just a lot of the handheld. Okay. So, in both secular society and in the scripture, the number 40 appears really frequently. So, let's take a quick peek at the secular world and how the secular world views turning 40. So, if you Google turning 40, these are some of the top things. I'll just read you a couple of the top results. What I wish I knew before I turned 40, according to 12 men. That's one. Two, what it's like to turn 40 as a woman in 2021. Three, five brutally honest things every woman turning 40 should know. Four, 15 honest and true realities of turning 40. It's not all fabulous. Five, brutally honest things people turning 40 want you to know. And this one's my favorite. Six, turning 40, it's time to get serious about health screenings. So it's kind of a dismal prospect just looking at the world. And this was an interesting study. There was an economics professor at Dartmouth who did a study of 500,000 people in 132 countries. And along this axis is age. This is life satisfaction ratings. And if you'll notice, there is a shockingly common <laughs> very similar curve that they found across so many people in so many countries. And this study even controlled for things like marriage and social economic status, sorry, and, um, and education. And they, they thought, why? Why is it that people are the least happy in their 40s? You know, this is so consistent from Peru to Iraq, it's everywhere. And they theorized, oh, maybe it's the sandwich generation. They're caring for their kids and their parents. They're paying for their kids' college. Maybe they've gotten to middle management and they're just stressed out and they feel like they're decades away from retirement, but they're just not happy. Well, I personally think that they just finally realized that the gaping hole in their heart can't be satisfied by the world. And so it's like, oh, wow, that's really it? That's what I have to look forward to? Because without God, 
it is sad, you know? Without God, life can be a really dismal place. Now, I thought, okay, well, it's not just in secular society, though. The significance of the number 40 in Scripture was also very interesting to me because of the prevalence. Um, The number 40 appears 146 times in Scripture. And just a couple of really well-known examples, um, Jesus fasted 40 days, Elijah also fasted 40 days on Mount Horeb, Abraham bargained with God if 40 righteous people were found, the flood, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath mocked Israel for 40 days. There are even some kind of obscure ones, like the Bible was written by 40 different people, and Ezekiel lay on his right side for 40 days as like one day for every year that Judah had rejected God. And I just thought, you know, that's interesting. The symbolism of 40 often represents a period of testing, trial, and then often finally triumph. And we endure to become more aware of our need for God. And faith, you know, why? Why do we need testing at all? Faith, though, if it's not tested, is vulnerable. And I remember about 17 or 18 years ago, I was a pretty new believer, and I remember calling my mom and saying, how do I know my faith is real? If it's never been tested, how do I know? And she said, well, you choose that right now where you're at, you decide how you're going to act if something bad happens. You say, I trust God no matter what. No matter what happens, you're going to trust God. And so that whole day I thought, no matter what happens, I'm going to trust God. Well, God had totally planted that seed in my mind because when I got home that night, my husband, Nathan, said, I just got laid off. I don't know what we're going to do. And I thought, huh. Well, that's funny because I just this morning asked God, God, is my faith real? It's not really ever tried. And so I thought, you know, that was kind of cool because faith, if it's not tested, is vulnerable. And so these periods of testing and trial can be really valuable to help us learn more about who we are. Now, I did not leave out Moses because... He was the one I'm most fascinated by in this look at 40 in the Bible. And so out of all of the different numbers of 40 in the Bible, Moses is the one that I wanted to do a deep dive on because it's the most interesting to me. And even though I'm turning 40 this summer, whether you're 75 or 25 or 90, I feel like these are lessons that all of us can find valuable no matter who we are and what our ages are. So, these are three lessons from Moses on turning 40 that have stood out to me. Lesson one, grow up. Lesson two, show up. Lesson three, give it all up. Now, lesson one is the first 40 years. Grow up. So, growing up is actually optional. We don't have to act like adults if we don't want to. We can remain immature and avoid responsibility our entire lives if we choose to. It's not a happy life, and there are a lot of people who refuse to act like adults, who don't accept responsibility and who don't want to be mature. But it's not a happy life. So how do we grow up? Well, how did Moses grow up? He spent his first 12 years with his godly mama, 
learning who God was and learning his relation to God. And now this is just a little side note from patriarchs and prophets to all the mamas out there, like me, trying to raise kids who love Jesus. Listen to this encouragement about Moses' mama from Patriarchs and Prophets. The whole future life of Moses, the great mission which he fulfilled as the leader in Israel, testifies to the importance of the work of the Christian mother. There is no other work that can equal this. Isn't that powerful? There's no other work that can equal this. That's just so encouraging to me. So Moses knew God, and he knew God's claims to himself, and he understood who he was. Interestingly enough, God told Moses, and this is something I actually hadn't realized. I guess I've read it before in Patriarchs and Prophets, but it hadn't stood out to me until now. Angels instructed Moses that God had chosen him to break the bondage of his people. So Moses knew about this. Moses knew that God had chosen him, and he grew up knowing that he was to be Israel's deliverer. And he knew how God saw him. He knew who he was to God. Likewise, the only way I can understand who I am to grow up is to understand who God really is and my relation to him. So Moses was the heir apparent, right? He was supposed to be Pharaoh, and he was supposed to become an Egyptian priest. All of the pharaohs were supposed to become priests in order to become Pharaoh. But Moses wouldn't be induced to participate in the worship of the Egyptian gods because he knew who he was. He understood who he was, and he was threatened with loss of the crown and of being disowned. But, this is Patriarchs and Prophets, he was unshaken in his determination to render homage to none save the one God, the maker of heaven and earth. And it wasn't always easy for him to stay true. He had a very cushy life in the palace. He didn't, he was, you know, Satan tried to kill Moses as a baby. That didn't work. So he had to change his strategies. And the strategies that Satan used when Moses was in the palace to keep Moses from growing up into who God wanted him to be were strategies like distraction, self-indulgence, being comfortable, self-reliance. Now, Satan's strategies didn't work for Moses, though. And this quote, I'm not going to read this whole thing, I promise, but there are some phenomenal patriarchs and prophets quotes, and I just thought Ellen White's saying it so much better than I could, so... I'm just going to read a bit, because it's so good. With all the world before him, he had the moral strength to refuse the flattering prospects of wealth, greatness, and fame. He had been instructed in regard to the final reward to be given to the humble, obedient servants of God, and worldly gain sank to its proper insignificance in comparison. I'm going to read that last part again. Worldly gain sank to its proper insignificance in comparison. When you think of Egypt, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the pyramids of Giza, they're the only things remaining. Egypt, at the time when Moses would have been Pharaoh, was incredibly wealthy. He would have been incredibly powerful. But 
compared to what he knew God had for him, it was insignificant. Now, I think Satan still uses those similar strategies to try and distract us, to try and keep us from growing up, from understanding who we really are in Jesus. And this is a quote from In Heavenly Places, which is one of my favorite morning devotions ever. It's so fantastic. If you haven't read it, you really should, because it's amazing. The natural mind leans toward pleasure and self-gratification. It is Satan's policy to manufacture an abundance of this. He seeks to fill the minds of men with a desire for worldly amusement, that they may have no time. I hear that all the time. I have no time. I have no time. I say it. No time to ask themselves the question, how is it with my soul? And then she goes on to say, the love of pleasure is infectious. Given up to this, the mind hurries from one point to another, ever seeking for some amusement. You see that word again? Amusement in Latin, the word muse means think, to think. In Latin, a is not. So literally, amusement means not thinking, to, sh to turn your brain off, not thinking. Now, I'm not saying that God wants us to go around being glum and gloomy Christians. He doesn't. I mean, God's the one who made puppies and taste buds and flowers and all those wonderful things that we enjoy so much. But God doesn't want us to be so distracted and busy with our lives that we don't have time for him. The solution, also from In Heavenly Places, let your soul be absorbed in meditating upon the glorious truths contained in the word of God, and you will have no constant craving for something which you have not. So we want to be like Moses and not let Satan's strategies work. We want to spend time understanding who we are who we are in Jesus. Now, I'm not Israel's deliverer, and neither are you. So, who are you? Well, Moses didn't have the privilege of reading the Bible. He hadn't started writing it yet. So angels had to tell him who he was, but we do have the Bible. And so, who does God say that I am? Now, I found so many fantastic affirmations of who we are in God. And I want you guys, we're going to go kind of quick because there are a bunch of them and I don't have all the time in the world. But there's going to be these. If you can read this, I know it's small. I just want you to read the bulleted, bolded lines with me. Not the verses that support it. Just the bulleted line with me, okay? There are going to be four slides with four affirmations each. And I want you to read it because when you speak these affirmations to yourself, it changes the wiring in your brain. The words you speak to yourself matter. So read with me. Who are you? Who does God say you are? I am a friend of Jesus. I am a new creature in Christ. I am redeemed and forgiven by the grace of Christ. I am God's workmanship created to produce good works. I have been accepted by Christ. In Christ Jesus, I have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. God leads me in the triumph and knowledge of Christ. The hardening of my mind has been removed in Christ. 
I have been justified and redeemed. My old self was crucified with Christ, and I am no longer a slave to sin. I will not be condemned by God. I have been set free from the law of sin and death. I have become the righteousness of God in Christ. I have been set free in Christ. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I am chosen, holy, and blameless before God. Is that how you live your life? I don't always live my life like that, but that's who God says I am. And I want to trust him because what he says goes. That's God's reality. When I accept Jesus... I can trust that he's doing that in me, even if I feel like such a failure every single day. I can trust that God's got me. So, lesson one is grow up. Like Moses, understand who you are through the lens of how God sees you, not how we see ourselves. There are so many days where I just think, oh, God, really? You, like this sermon, I don't feel... I'm not a preacher. I have a walk with God and a willing heart. And you know what? God can equip us. If we're willing, God can equip us. And, I mean, that's the thing that's so fantastic about God is he, if we trust him, he will bring these things that he promises us. He will fulfill them in his time. So lesson two is show up. So the first lesson, grow up. Moses' life was kind of divided into 40-year chunks. The first 40 years, the second 40 years, the third 40 years. So lesson two, the second 40 years, show up. Moses remained at court for 40 until he was 40 years of age. But he wasn't contented, even though he had a cushy life, often stung to resentment. This is Patriarchs and Prophets often stung to resentment by the sight of injustice and oppression, he burned to avenge their wrongs. Remember, the angels told him, you're the deliverer. And he burned to avenge their wrongs. And so when he was 40, he thought, all right, I'm 40. What does it mean to show up? What do I mean by that, show up for our lives? In my mind, showing up means fulfilling the purpose that God has for us. So Moses understood who he was, and he decided that it was time for him to show up to fulfill his purpose. But there was only one problem. This is why I wanted the handheld mic. Moses tried to show up in his own way, when he was 40, and killed the Egyptian. In slaying the Egyptian, Moses had fallen into the same error so often committed by his fathers, of taking into their own hands the work that God had promised to do. It wasn't God's will to deliver his people by warfare, as Moses thought, but by his own mighty power. So Moses was trying to show up. He was trying to fulfill his purpose. But just like so many of us, he was trying to do it in his own strength, in his own power. It's the natural human way of doing things. 
But even this rash act was overruled by God to accomplish his purposes. Moses wasn't prepared for his great work. He needed to learn the same lesson of faith, not to rely on human strength or wisdom, but upon the power of God for the fulfillment of his promises. This is a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets that I found so powerful. Men would have dispensed with that long period of toil and obscurity about the 40 years in Midian, deeming it a great loss of time. God called him who was to become the leader of his people to spend 40 years in the desert at Midian in the humble work of a shepherd. So I'm saying that this 40 years in Midian, when he was a shepherd for Jethro, is showing up. Well, that might seem counterintuitive to you, but I was thinking Moses was just as much showing up for his life when he was a humble shepherd for 40 years in Midian as when he was delivering the Israelites. If you look at some of the lessons that he learned when he was in Midian, these are all from patriarchs and prophets, patience, reverence, humility, meekness, to temper his passions, a heart in harmony with God, habits of caretaking, self-forgetfulness, compassion. Those are amazingly valuable lessons. So what men would have dispensed with and said, oh, what a waste. This amazing guy who was supposed to be Pharaoh and now he's just a shepherd in Midian for 40 years? What a waste. No. Look what Ellen White says about that time, that 40 years in Midian. No advantage that human training or culture could bestow could be a substitute for this experience. So, showing up. How do we show up in our lives? Well, being in the center of God's will, however quiet, humble it is, learning God's lessons, that is showing up. Even if it's not some grand display, because not all of us are going to go charging in front of a pharaoh, hardly anybody. I mean, that was a really unusual thing. But Moses was still fulfilling his purpose. When he was in Midian, he was still showing up for his life. He was still fulfilling God's purpose when he was learning from his ordinary life as a shepherd. And this is encouraging to me because I have an ordinary life. Most of you guys have an ordinary life compared to Moses, right? But we can find value and beauty and spiritual lessons in the ordinary every day because God uses our everyday lives to shape our characters, one choice at a time. We can learn lessons like patience if our children are fighting, self-discipline if we need to go to bed so that we can get up and have devotions in the morning but we don't feel like going to bed on time but we know that if we don't, we won't have enough time for a solid devotions. Self-discipline right there. We can learn joy. You know, if we're having a grumpy day, we can choose to dance around to some happy Jesus music and choose to look at the positives in our life, the beautiful, everyday, ordinary things. So show up for your life like Moses did in Midian. 
So our last lesson is give it all up. The third 40 years. After 40 years in Midian, when Moses was 80, God called him to deliver Israel. And at the burning bush, God said, I see my people. I came down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people out of Egypt. Now, let's see what God said. I see my people. I came down to deliver them. This is God talking. I came down to deliver them. Now, remember, Moses knew from angels that he was supposed to be the deliverer. This wasn't news to him. But listen to what he said. Ooh. Moses said, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's interesting for someone who had angels tell them, you're going to be the deliverer of Israel. That's fascinating to me. But the divine command given to Moses found him self-distrustful, slow of speech, and timid. He was overwhelmed with a sense of his own inadequacy. He was overwhelmed with the fact that he wasn't all that. That he wasn't some powerful, probably handsome, 40-year-old almost pharaoh. God was able to use Moses after the 40 years in Midian because he had learned that it wasn't possible for him and his own strength to deliver Israel. He was self-distrustful, and this was why God could use him. What did God say in response? Certainly, I will be with you. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should say. God was basically saying to Moses, Moses, it's my job. It was never your job in the first place. It was my job. I'm the one who's going to deliver Israel. Your job is to trust me to get it done. Yes, I'm going to use you, Moses, as an instrument, but it's my job, not yours. Trust me. And Moses, once he accepted the work, he entered upon it with his whole heart, putting all his trust in the Lord. And that was why he was able to be successful, because he put all of his trust in the Lord. So, lesson three, what do I mean, give it all up? Give up. What did Moses give up? His self-trust, his self-reliance, his self-sufficiency, his pride, Moses was able to be Israel's deliverer because he gave it all up to God. And then the next 40 years, when God worked the amazing miracle of delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians, and then the 40 years in the wilderness, when Moses was the leader of millions of people, he was grown up. He was showing up for his life, fulfilling his purpose, and giving it all to God and letting God use him as an instrument. And we can only be used by God when we, like Moses, say, I can't. God, I'm struggling with this issue in my heart. 
my temper, my lack of patience, all these issues. We all have so many issues. But when we, like Moses, say, I can't, God, I can't seem to make it right. I can't seem to fix it. And God says, you're right, you can't. I'm so glad that you realized that. Trust me. Trust that I'm going to do it for you. Trust me to fulfill my promises for you. God's job versus our job, God draws us to him. He accepts us. He saves us by his grace. He transforms our characters. He changes our very natures. Our job is to accept his gift, justification. Trust him every day. Keep trusting every day. Sanctification. Enter into that saving relationship with Jesus every day and trust that he is able to do what he says he will do. There are so many promises that say, ask me, ask me for the Holy Spirit. He says, ask me to lead you, and I will. And there have been many times in my life where I didn't know what to do, and I said, God, just tell me. I just want you to like write it on a post-it note and stick it somewhere because I want to know your will. But I've really begun to realize that I'm asking God to lead me in my life. He promised he would. So why, do, why am I not trusting that he is leading? He is leading. I can trust that he is because he said he would, and I'm asking, and I can trust his words. We learn to trust God by getting to know who he really is, his character who he is, that he's not vengeful and arbitrary and unforgiving as his enemies have made him out to be. He's not out to get you when you sin. He's there to help us, to draw us nearer to him. When we spend time with him and we ask every day for the Holy Spirit to baptize us, and we want to soak every aspect of our lives in who God is, not just our morning worship, checking it off, but everything we do, make it about Jesus. When we really draw near to God in that way, then it's a joy-filled life, even though, of course, there are difficulties. We all have difficulties. But it's so much more joy-filled. You're going to have difficulties whether you have the presence of God or not. And when we draw near to Jesus, then we can. He enables us to grow up, show up, and give it all up to him. And as we close, I'm going to sing Draw Me Nearer. My sweet sister is going to come play the piano for me because that's how we can learn to have that trusting relationship with Jesus, is continually drawing nearer to Jesus every day. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith, and be closer drawn to thee.
with a word of prayer. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are and that we can know you. What an incredible privilege. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to never let the busyness of our lives distract from our true priority of getting to know you and shining your love to the world around us. Help us to have a blessed Sabbath day. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a lovely Sabbath. Carol, would you play a lovely postlude, please? Thanks. Thanks.